Bienvenue. Hello and welcome. Welcome to City Breaks Paris, episode two, the first proper episode of the series. And where better to start our tour of lovely Paris than right in the heart of the city, the oldest part of the city on the two islands, the Ile de la Cité and the Ile Saint-Louis. There'll be a little bit of history and a chance to visit some of the most beautiful buildings in Paris, namely the Conciergerie and the Sainte-Chapelle. Notre-Dame's there too, but we're going to save that for the next episode. So, picture, if you will, yourself sailing down the Seine. Perhaps you've started out at the Tour Eiffel. So you're sailing from west to east, and you've got the Tuileries and the Louvre on your left. You're just approaching Notre-Dame, and that's where the river splits into two. Both halves wend their way round to the back of the cathedral, and that is the Ile de la Cité that you are sailing round. If you decide to reach it by foot, you probably arrive via the Pont Neuf, the new bridge, as it's called in English, Paris's oldest bridge. You could sail round the back of Notre Dame and come back, or you could carry on past Notre Dame to a second little island, the one known as Ile Saint-Louis, reached, of course, on foot by the Pont Saint-Louis, the Saint-Louis Bridge. So, Ile de la Cité then, site of the very first settlers in Paris, the Parisi, who gave the city their name, of course, and are believed to have arrived in about 300 BC. The Ile de la Cité is also the place where the Romans, when they arrived in 52 BC, set up camp. When they were there, the city was known as Lutetia. You'll see that word on hotels and various places. But the people who perhaps had the biggest influence on what we see today would be the Franks, who arrived in the 10th century, because they began a building bonanza which included turning the Roman fortress into a splendid palace and gave us the beginnings at least, of the Conciergerie and the Sainte-Chapelle, and indeed Notre-Dame. By the 12th century, there was a really lively settlement going on, 12 parishes, no less, on the island, so lots of chapels and monasteries. The place was really the hub of royal and ecclesiastical power in the city. If you want to get a sense of Paris as it was then, the best thing to do would be to visit the Crypte Archéologique, so the archaeological crypt which is on Ile de la Cité, and which will tell you much about what it used to look like. And this is needed because of one Baron Osman, who in the 19th century swept much of it out of his way because he wanted to build sweeping great avenues and boulevards and some 25,000 people were believed to have left the island and gone elsewhere and 90 little streets were done away with. If you imagine walking from east to west along the Ile de la Cité, then the place where you will start will be on the Pont Neuf at something called the Square du Vert Galant. Medieval French translates apparently as the Lusty Gentleman. If you stand on the Pont Neuf and look east towards Notre Dame, then you are looking at the medieval city or the site of the medieval city, as Bill Bryson did when he visited and about which he wrote the following, quote, Glowing softly and floating on the river like a vision, a medieval hamlet, magically preserved in the midst of a modern city. Pause a moment to just mention the Pont Neuf properly, Paris's oldest bridge, gracefully built in the time of Henry IV, Henri IV, with twelve arches, and a statue of him halfway across. It was a very popular place to visit, the very latest in building trends, I suppose, and a place where lots of different things were happening. It became a site to visit, to go shopping, to be entertained. The author John Russell, who wrote the book Paris, 
visited in 1960 and described it as, quote, a fairground, department store, employment exchange, picture gallery, and poor man's Harley Street. And he went on to write a wonderful description of some of the very varied activities you could undertake on the Pontneuf if you visited in the early days when it was newly built. So here he is on that. You could, he says, quote, have a tooth out, go through the situations vacant, watch the tightrope dancers, buy a lancre or a fragonard, two artists of the day, of course, join the army, pick up the new Marivaux or a first edition of Manon Lescaut, arrange to go up in a balloon, watch a bullfight, take fencing lessons or attend a surgical demonstration. Phew, what an exhausting list. Another 20th century writer who visited this very spot was Ernest Hemingway. He liked it very much too, and he wrote about it in his book A Movable Feast. He describes going down the steps just by the statue of Henri IV to the Vergalon Park, writing about it as follows, quote, At the head of the Ile de la Cité, below the Pont Neuf, where there was a statue of Henri IV, the island ended in a point like the sharp bow of a ship, and there was a small park at the water's edge with fine chestnut trees, huge and spreading and in the currents and backwaters that the Seine made flowing past, there were excellent places to fish. He goes on then to describe watching the fishermen using their long cane poles and their quill floats, and said that they often had quite a lot of luck with their fishing, and describes how it was a very good place to fish, because there was always something to catch. Quote, They always caught some fish, and often they made excellent catches of the dace-like fish that were called goujons. They were delicious fried whole, and I could eat a plateful. They were plump and sweet-fleshed, with a finer flavour than fresh sardines even, and were not at all oily, and we ate them, bones and all. A bit later on he describes how he often came back to this place, like to sit along the Seine, and buy a litre of wine and a piece of bread and sausage, and a book, second-hand bookshops there to this day of course, and then he used to enjoy sitting on the bank and reading and drinking, and watching the fishing. So, from the Pont Neuf, then, you can wander along the Ile de la Cité, and you'll be going past the Conciergerie, and the Sainte-Chapelle, in Notre-Dame, and eventually, when you come to the other end of the island, another bridge, the Pont Saint-Louis, the Saint-Louis Bridge, will take you across to the Ile Saint-Louis, where there's really, if we're honest, not all that much in terms of big sights to see. There is one rather splendid church, called the Church of Saint-Louis-en-Ile, which has inside it a statue of Saint-Louis holding his crusader's sword. There's also Paris's most famous, best-known ice cream store, Bertillon. I think quite a lot of people go there just for that. But please don't think I'm saying you should give it a miss, because actually, the atmosphere is just lovely. You really feel you're in the least spoilt part of Paris, the quietest little haven in that busy city. Somewhere so self-contained that the people who live there give themselves their own name in they are known as the Ludovicians, people who live on Louis Island, and they refer apparently to the rest of Paris as the continent. In the early Middle Ages, this piece of land was actually known as the Ile aux Vaches, Vaches being cows, it was pasture land, and that's what was going on there. But in the early 17th century, a bridge was built, and then aristocrats came along and built themselves townhouses, some of which are still there today. It's said, in fact, that the aristocrats are still there too. I've read that if you live there, your neighbours are likely to be 
a minister or two, and one of the Rothschilds. There's a nice description of the island in a novel called Murder on the Ile Saint-Louis, written by Carla Black, in which she captures the atmosphere very nicely, writing of, quote, narrow limestone-facaded townhouses with delicate wrought-iron balconies and high-arched entrances. There are massive carved entry doors leading to double and triple deep courtyards and gardens that could never be glimpsed from the outside. Sounds like a good place for a murder mystery, doesn't it? Lots of tiny little streets, hidden back passages that have barely changed since medieval times. Bill Bryson was there too, and he too was taken with his atmosphere of it being really quite medieval, writing that, quote, I wandered up and down the shuttered streets, half expecting to find chickens wandering in the road and peasants pushing carts loaded with plague victims. At the quieter times of the year, or quieter parts of the day, can actually feel quite spooky, especially if you go on a gloomy day or a misty day. And there are writers who have noted this. The 19th century Balzac, for example, quote, If you walk along the streets of the Ile Saint-Louis, do not ask why you feel gripped by a sort of nervous sadness. For its cause, you have only to look at the solitude of the place, at the gloomy aspect of its houses. And another travel writer, Cyril Connolly, writing in the mid-twentieth century, pointed out the analogy of it being a little bit like a ship, and wrote, The Ile Saint-Louis strains at her moorings, the river eddies round the stone prow, where tall poplars stand like masts, and mist rises about the decaying houses, which 17th century nobles raised on their meadows. So yes, another world, a little bit of Paris, quite unlike any other. You might be wondering, by the way, which Louis we are talking about, after whom all these places were named. I'm sure you know that there are lots of royal Louis connected with Paris, but this one was Louis IX, later known in fact as Saint Louis. He's a 13th century person, died in 1270. But we know quite a lot about him because one of his contemporaries, one Joinville, wrote a biography of him, in which he described him as being, quote, tall, spare and graceful, with a sweet face and the eyes of a dove. In fact, he soon goes on to explain that the one overwhelming characteristic about Louis was his total piety, his absolute certain Christian faith. Robert Cole, author of Traveller's History of Paris, has, I think, read the Louis biography, and this is how he sums up Louis' idea of a normal day. Quote, Louis' regimen consisted of 50 genuflections and Ave Marias before retiring to bed, two masses upon rising in the morning, and further offices said at the hours of Tierce, Sext, Nones, Vespers, and Compline, wearing a hair shirt, having the most scabrous beggars from the street brought in to dine with him, trying to wash the feet of all the abbots in Paris. Mr. Cole is actually quite amusing because he then goes on to write, quote, Taken as a whole, such zealousness does not argue a stable personality. Oh dear, poor Louis. But, in addition to his piety, which was certainly the main thing about him, he was also quite an intellectual, liked learning and books. He kept a collection of books and documents on philosophy and theology. He read them, he invited students and scholars in to read them too, and he set up an archive, which in fact was the first of its kind in France, full of things like royal acts and property titles and town charters and write-ups of various judgments that had been given, all catalogued and preserved. 
such that, as his biographer Joinville claimed, Louis would know, quote, the rights of all men and give enlightened justice. Louis also went on two crusades, one in 1248 and a second one in 1270, when he went to Carthage, where he died and was buried. So there's a statue of him in the church on the Ile Saint-Louis, but his actual body and remains are in present-day Tunisia. In the 21st century, what we most remember Louis for, I think, would be the building of that wonderful church, the Sainte-Chapelle, the Holy Chapel in English. Must be, I think, certainly if you just go on the inside, the most beautiful church in the whole of Paris. And it was built by Louis to house his religious relics and treasures. He was quite a buyer of such things. In 1238, for example, he bought what was claimed to be at least the crown of thorns from the emperors of Constantinople, and he collected a variety of other relics, things like a fragment of Christ's shroud, some drops of his blood, and even the true cross. And so he decided that he had to build a church to house these things, and the result was the Sainte-Chapelle, consecrated in 1248, the most beautiful two-storey building, full of stained-glass windows, 1,113 religious scenes all told through stained-glass pictures, some of the windows up to 15 metres high, and they tell Bible stories from Genesis right round to the resurrection. Some of them are the originals, and they'll be the oldest stained-glass windows in Paris. Some of them had to be redone in the 19th century. But it is, I think, especially if you go on a sunny day, the stained glass that really makes its impact when you walk in. A real wow moment. Described by Tim O'Reilly, editor of a book called Traveller's Tales Paris, as follows. Quote, Narrow ribs of soaring stone separate band after band of illumination, what seems like more glass than all of Notre Dame in a space one-tenth the size. Shafts of brilliance from every side, as if we'd found our way to the heart of a jewel to the heart of a dragon's hoard of jewels. It's a building, of course, where some memorable moments of history took place. For example, in 1396, it was the scene of the betrothal of Richard II, our English Richard II, to Isabel of France, who became his queen. It survived fire and escaped demolition during the French Revolution. A lot of churches didn't, but this one did. And it survived again in 1871, when the Communards, also very anti-religious, tried to burn it down. Actually, what you're looking at is a building where over centuries and centuries, worship has been given, beautiful services have been held, generations and generations of choir boys have come, learnt grammar and music and sung at the services, where many solemn services have been held for the death of a sovereign. For example, in 1715, this was the site of the funeral oration for Louis Fourteenth just absolutely steeped in history. The relics for which it was built originally are now mainly in Notre Dame. So once it reopens after the fire, I'm sure you might want to go there and see them, but don't miss out La Sainte-Chapelle because it's just so glorious. Pious Louis spent more money on the chapelle than he'd even spent on the relics, and that was a huge amount, and he really has left us one of the most beautiful buildings in the whole of Paris. If music concerts are your thing, you might like to know that they have quite a lot of those in the evenings, so that's a good way to see the inside as well. The Sainte-Chapelle, then, is one of the only two remaining parts of what was once the oldest palace of the kings of France. And the other one is the building next door, 
the conciergerie, which, although it had already existed for many centuries, really came into its own in the 13th century, again under Louis IX, because he conducted a major renovation of it. One of his successors, though, in the 14th century, Charles V, decided to move the court out. He'd been subject to one or two revolts, began to feel not very safe, and moved himself and all his entourage to the Bastille and the Louvre, but left behind a steward known as the concierge. It's modern-day French for caretaker, actually, but I think this man had quite a lot more power than that. And he was left behind to oversee the palace, so it would still belong to the royals, even if they weren't going to live there as much. The concierge had judicial powers, as well as all his other powers, and so gradually it became used as a courtroom and a prison, hence its title today, the Palais de Justice. It's been used as a prison, I read in one guidebook, between the years of 1391 and 1914, but particularly came into its own, as you will imagine, and in fact here later on in a future episode, during the French Revolution. In this episode, though, I'd just like to focus on the medieval aspects of the building. When some 2,000 people lived here, the King's Guard, his clerks, his officers, lots of servants to keep them all going, it was a centre of religion, of law, of finance. And rooms that you may wish to visit are the spectacular Salle des Jeans d'Armes, which dates from 1302. Jean means people, d'Armes of arms, must surely be where the word gendarme, current French for policeman, comes from. And it really is quite a building. A vast vaulted hall, four different naves, huge high ceiling, a place where receptions were given by medieval monarchs and which was surrounded by four kitchens where some 300 domestic staff toiled, the cooks, the bakers, the wine servers, and of course all the food was stored there as well. And there are tales of many amazing banquets held there. For example, then, in January 1378, the king at the time, King Charles V, had his uncle visiting, the emperor being one Emperor Charles of Luxembourg, and so an 800-place banquet was held in his honour. There's also a room known as the Salle des Gardes, or the guard room, which was the antechamber to the Grande Chambre. The Grande Chambre was upstairs. It's disappeared over time, but it was the place where Parliament sat, and so the Salle des Gardes down below was full of people keeping an eye on things. I'm afraid there's also a torture chamber in a part of the building called the Tour Bombec, and there's a Tour d'Argent as well, which in English would be Silver Tower, and that was the building where all the royal treasures were stored. So, visiting the conciergerie then, you really can get a sense of the wonders that were built in medieval times in Paris. Just to finish off the episode, I would like to retell briefly the story of perhaps the best-known love story from Paris over any century, and that would be the story of Eloise and Abelard. It's very fitting to tell it here, because they were real Parisians who lived right here on the Ile de la Cité and whose famous love story has been retold ever since down the centuries. Okay, so Eloise was the daughter of a canon who worked at Notre Dame and Ablar was a philosopher. He worked in the city of Paris and he was employed by Eloise's uncle because he wanted her to have a tutor. They fell in love. Abelard was some 20 years older than Eloise. He'd been born in 1079 and she in 1101. But they fell madly in love, had a son, one Astrolabe, 
got married in secret, all of this apparently without the uncle noticing. But when he did find out, he was absolutely, totally, completely furious and exacted a terrible punishment on both of them. He had Abelard castrated and he sent his niece, Eloise, to a convent. It's believed that they never saw each other again, although they did correspond. I'll read an extract from one or two letters in a minute. And they both lived quite a good long while afterwards. So Abelard took monk's vows. He joined the abbey at Saint-Denis, another building we'll be talking about in the next episode, and he continued to study and write. Eloise became the abbess eventually of the convent that she'd been sent to. And although they wrote to each other for the rest of their lives, it's believed that they were reunited only in death. I'm not sure where they were buried originally, but I do know that in 1817 their remains were disinterred and the two of them were buried together in what became eventually Paris's best-known cemetery, the cemetery Père Lachaise, where you can visit today and see their tomb. You can also find a plaque to them on the Ile de la Cité at a building known as Nine Quai des Fleurs, which was the house where the uncle, Canon Fulbert, lived with his niece, Eloise, and which was rebuilt in the 19th century because interest in them became very great in that century and people began to think, let's hold on to the story. A story which has been told in many literary works all over the centuries, not least by Chaucer, by Alexander Pope, and surely a story which is one of the many reasons why Paris has always been thought of as the city of love and romance, even though this particular story has such a terrible ending. Not going to read any extracts from those, but I would like to finish by reading some of the writing actually by Abelard himself. At one point in his writings, he describes exactly what it was that first attracted him to the beautiful Eloise. She was, he said, quote, of no mean beauty. She stood out above all by reason of her abundant knowledge of letters. Now this virtue is rare among women, and for that very reason it doubly graced the maiden made her the most worthy of renown in the entire kingdom. It was this young girl whom I, after carefully considering all those qualities which are wont to attract lovers, determined to unite with myself in the bonds of love, and indeed the thing seemed to me very easy to be done. And he goes on to explain how he managed to get himself employed by Eloise's uncle, in fact persuaded the uncle that not only would he tutor his niece, but he would move into the household, and use whatever free time he had to tutor Eloise and be paid for it. He says himself that he was rather surprised that the uncle, as he put it, entrusted her wholly to my guidance, and goes on, perhaps even more frankly, to say that his surprise was no less than the following, quote, I should not have been more smitten with wonder if he had entrusted a tender lamb to the care of a ravenous wolf. But if that puts you off him as possibly a bit of a cad, I think he redeems himself in the writing that he left us about their love affair. So here's an extract about that. Quote, we were united first in the dwelling that sheltered our love and then in the hearts that burned with it. Under the pretext of study, we spent our hours in the happiness of love and learning held out to us the secret opportunities that our passion craved. Our speech was more of love than of books which lay open before us. Our kisses far outnumbered our reasoned words. Our hands sought less the book than each other's bosoms. Love drew our eyes together far more than the lesson drew them to the pages of our text. No degree in love's progress was left untried by our passion. 
and if love itself could imagine any wonder as yet unknown, we discovered it, and our inexperience of such delights made us all the more ardent in our pursuit of them, so that our thirst for one another was still unquenched. So there you have it, a tale of love and romance, in the city of love and romance, but played out in the 12th century. Okay, so that more or less wraps it up for today's episode. In the next episode, I'm going to stay in medieval times and take a visit to two cathedrals in the city of Paris, the world-famous Notre-Dame, here on the Ile de la Cité where we spent the current episode, and the lesser-known Basilique de Saint-Denis, up on the northern outskirts of the city, place which has become the burial place of almost all the kings and queens of France, and which is perhaps not as visited as it should be. Perhaps that's changing a little in current times, when you can't go to Notre-Dame, I'm hoping to inspire you perhaps to take the metro up to the north towards the Stade de France and stop off and see the Basilique Saint-Denis as well. So, all of that to come next week. For the moment, I would just like to thank you very much for listening. Merci. To hope very much that perhaps you will join me next week. À la semaine prochaine. And to wish you goodbye, in French of course. Au revoir. <laughs>